listening to Turning Out on Dublin Digital Radio. In the last couple of weeks here in Ireland, it has been revealed that Quilche, Ireland's forestry service, who you've heard a lot about in this series so far, are facilitating a land grab of a quarter of a million acres by two investment funds, one of which is based in the UK. This will hugely intensify all of the issues we have raised so far in this series. The destruction of ecosystems due to monocrop forestry, the decline of rural population and farming families due to soaring land prices, and ultimately the loss of Irish sovereignty as huge parcels of land pass over into British ownership. Once again, the wholesale robbery of the nation is being facilitated by homegrown imperialist collaborators. This time, it's our own forestry service, Quilche. Quilche are supposed to be working for us, but in reality, there is no democratic oversight of their activity. They function entirely as a private, profit-driven company. At the same time, the government's inept response to the housing crisis continues, with the solutions put forward being tax cuts for developers and a housing conference where property lobbyists outnumber housing and homeless groups by a wide margin. Finnegal TD Damien English resigned after it was revealed by investigative journalists at the ditch that he cheated on a planning application by lying about his status as a homeowner. He had a fully furnished house already, left sitting empty. This in the middle of a housing crisis more severe than any ever experienced in the history of the state. A housing crisis in which the tensions are increasing constantly as the state successfully plays marginalised communities off against each other. The recent anti-refugee protests, while no doubt stoked and harnessed by far-right activists, are more accurately understood as a response to overcrowding and under-resourcing of working-class areas. People are getting scared and desperate, and this will be exploited by right-wing political actors. How do we respond to all of this? Our government is populated heavily by landlords who are prone to lying and deceiving, even the very institutions they're supposed to manage, who are facilitating land grabs by wealthy investment funds, who are destabilising our habitat through rampant monocropping and who show no meaningful care to the asylum seekers they claim to be helping or to their own citizens who they claim to represent. We can expect nothing less from a neo-colonial government. I realised as I was writing my notes for this that I'm throwing around a load of terms that might not be understood in the same way by everyone. Imperialism, neo-colonialism and neoliberalism. I'll spend a minute explaining what I mean by those terms. It's important that we're on the same page with the vocabulary, as many of the issues discussed here are simply symptoms of these three phenomena. Imperialism is the process whereby the capitalist class of a powerful nation subjugates another, poorer nation to exploit its resources and labour. A modern example would be the US occupying parts of Iraq or Syria in order to steal the oil. This is, of course, linked to colonialism, where the dominant nation completely takes possession of the subject nation. Neo-colonialism is the process whereby the dominant country exerts political control over a former colony through economic coercion. Now this can happen through directly facilitating the formation of an indigenous capitalist government with the same value system as the coloniser, as the British government did here with the Free State. Or it can be through the use of unfair loans with loads of conditions attached, such as how the World Bank and IMF deal with many African nations, or with Ireland for that matter. Neoliberalism describes the deregulation of private business, the privatisation of public services, the implementation of austerity measures, cuts to social services, and so on. In other words, the removal of all control over capitalist expansion and the erosion of human rights, such as the right to housing, healthcare, and education. Neoliberal policies are used as a weapon of neocolonialism and imperialism. Poor nations are given financial aid on the condition that they reshape their society along capitalist lines. For example, 
as a condition of membership of the EU. Ireland was forced to privatise electricity, which up until the late 90s was entirely publicly owned, non-profit and one of the cheapest in Europe. Now, due to privatisation and liberalisation of the market, we have the fourth most expensive electricity rates in the EU. Throughout the series, but especially this episode, I will refer to the Irish government using these terms, because so many of the issues we are discussing here are aspects of those ideological phenomena. Although Ireland was the first colony of the British Empire, land grabbing is not solely a feature of this country. Even in the USA, the land of the free, where the concept of private ownership is seen as sacrosanct, we see that just because something is your private property, even your own land, if there are stronger interests with greater access to capital and political influence, then these sacred ideals of theirs can be bent and broken. People want to call us activists. I am not an activist, I'm an educator. I'm here telling you the story of my life, what the industry has done to me, my town, and my friends and other workers that have died. And again, this is a health issue, is what I'm talking about. You can't put religion, color your skin, politics, throw that all in the garbage. This is a global health issue. Without clean air, clean water, and clean soil, we're all dead. It's real simple. Raymond Kemble is from Dimmock, Pennsylvania. I met Ray at the climate camp in Tarbert, which was organized in opposition to the proposed LNG terminal in that area. Ray and other activists from the US came to share their experience of fighting the fracked gas industry. If the Shannon LNG terminal goes ahead, it'll be shipping fracked glass from the States, in liquid form, to Ireland for dispersal into the European network. They fracked a well 500 feet from the front door of my house, and one day they took out 33 water wells in one day was contaminated, the aquifer was totally shot. And we haven't had water since, so I haven't had water in my house for 16, yeah, 16 years. Haven't had water, so we have to truck it in. We got compressor stations by the house, everything else, so you know, you have air, land, water, is all contaminated. We knew DEP, which is our Department of Environmental Protection in Pennsylvania, was lying to us. I went to work for the industry, uh, but I didn't realize I was gonna kill myself doing it. I was diagnosed with cancer, barium. You know, my friend Randy just passed away, barium poison, radiation poisoning. He only worked for four months, he was inside the tanks. He just passed away because some other workers, you know, passed away. Brain tumors where they're never sick in a day in their lives. We've had over 13 people in our town diagnosed with cancer where they're never sick in a day in their lives. And something, you know, we have these massive uh, cancer and this, I can't pronounce the one, but it's a brain cancer. It's really rare, and which is due to the chemicals that are being used in the fracking process. And the radiation, you know, I got four grades of uranium in my water well. A prevalent theme in this series has been the threat to water. You will have heard numerous activists by now talking about the threat posed to water by gold mining in Ireland. Fracking, the gas extraction process that destroyed Dimmock's water, is arguably worse, and thankfully it has been banned here in Ireland. But the method currently used to extract gold, heat bleaching using cyanide, is broadly similar to the fracking process in a few ways. Both methods are literally scraping the barrel in that they allow the industry to access a resource that up until now has been too difficult or just impossible to get at. With fracking they drill horizontally underground, trigger explosions to fracture the rock and then pump down millions of gallons of water mixed with corrosive chemicals to release the gas. With heat bleaching, tons upon tons of rock is extracted, crushed into a fine particulate matter and then covered in cyanide to extract the gold. Both processes require a huge amount of destruction of land and huge quantities of water to get the end product. For example, it takes an average of 20 tonnes of rock to retrieve a third of an ounce of gold, making it roughly half as efficient as older methods, which targeted richer ores. 
With traditional methods of oil and gas extraction, for every one barrel of oil burned in the process, they got between 50 and 100 barrels back. With fracking, for every one barrel spent, you get three back. So with both processes, we see an increase of waste when compared to older methods. While the gold extraction process is overall less destructive than fracking, the lesson to be learned from the US is that this is the logical end result of industry deregulation, the rolling back of environmental protection and the liberalisation of the market. Sacrificing local democracy, meaningful democracy for the people, on the altar of foreign direct investment and the corporate profit motive more broadly. Decisions still to be made by the government will have a direct effect on the lives of marginalised rural communities in the States. If Shannon LNG goes ahead, it'll mean more fracking, more destroyed water wells, more sick people and more dead people. Here, it will mean the wasting of public money on stranded assets in the form of the LNG terminal, it'll tie us to increased emissions and it'll tie us to reliance on foreign energy imports. Why is an idea so self-evidently bad even being considered? Because, simply, we are governed by a political class that has entirely bought into the neoliberal ideology. Why let reality get in the way of a bright idea? The neoliberal, neo-colonial, imperialist system, which can be simply understood as the system of aggressive, expansionist capitalism, links us to peoples all over the world. While in Tarbert, I also met with Maureen O'Connor, an activist with Extinction Rebellion, who used to be a development worker in Uganda. All right, so my name is Maureen O'Connor. I have joined Extinction Rebellion in the last couple of years. I suppose the reason why I joined Extinction Rebellion was that uh, I kind of saw that um, the land we are living in was coming under, under threat. I had lived in Africa for some good long time, and I had seen how small communities in Africa were growing their own food, it was healthy, it was nutritious, it was tasty. It kept me very much um, in good health for many, many years. And towards the end of my stay there, I found that their land was coming under threat from uh, multinational companies and tea plantation, particularly a tea plantation, which decided to set up in the local community there. It was in Uganda. And I suppose the tea plantation, in a way, disturbed the uh, a community which was actually trying to develop a sense of uh, the value of their own organic food. And uh, when I came back to Ireland then, I found that the same issues were playing in here. And I found Extinction Rebellion ready and an organization willing to, um, to take on the challenge of protecting the environment and trying to um, do something to mitigate the influence of big corporates who don't really have an interest in, uh, in the environment except in exploiting it. So uh, that, that, that sense that I have of the land and of empathy with the land and of value of the land and value for food, that came from my experience in Africa. But it also came from my own background, because I grew up on a small farm in North Kerry, where we're actually making this podcast today. And um, I saw there how the whole community was kept together, glued together around farming and around sustainable farming. And uh, from a very early age, I had learned how to plant food. I could plant potatoes. I could plant vegetables. I could look after animals from a very early age. So I have that sense of empathy with the land and with the, with the life of the land. So I think that's really why I, I am um, 
even why I'm at this camp today. I asked Maureen to tell me about her experience in Uganda and the capitalist expansion she witnessed there. She described to me the clash of two different worldviews, two different cosmologies. One that was embedded in the local habitat and oriented around social bonds. Another which was imposed on the land and based on an atomised outlook, an approach of separation. We will explore this phenomenon in the Irish context more later in the episode with Fergal from Talibio. We had developed a, um, a small project where I was working, yes? And it, it, it came as a, re- a result of a request from the local people to support them in their effort to grow organic food. And one of the things they requested was manure. They had no manure, basically. I saw them going around collecting pieces of goat's droppings to grow things, you know? So they suggested to me, I knew that they knew I had some access to more funding than they had. And their suggestion was, let us get some pigs and the pigs will do manure, they will produce the manure, and then they will help the community and the local women and the small families to grow better food. And they will also do a little bit of work because women in Africa, they do all the turning of the soil and everything with a single hoe. And the pigs actually can be put out to graze and they can turn over some of the soil. And pigs like doing that, do you know? Pigs like actually to turn up the soil a bit. That's, that's part of their nature, do you know? So they were able to help with that. Now what I saw there actually in that project was the conflict of ideologies between the Western approach to uh, farming, pigs, and what I thought the Western capitalistic colonial approach, which they are learning as against their own knowledge that nature is good and that what is local is good. And that was, the two ideologies clashed for me when money was sent from Ireland to build the pig project, to, to, to get the pig project going. In the group that we were working with, some of the group members said, we will, where will we house these pigs? We'll get these, where will we house them? And one group said, we will house them in a brick building. We'll get some cement building, because up there on the top of the hill is the bishop, and he has that kind of a house, so that must be the best house. And I didn't know where I stood, because I am part of the colonial system. And the others are talking, there's another side of the, my, on my left hand, they're talking about, uh, no, we need uh, to spend that money differently. And these pigs can't live in a better house than I live in. Because I live in a mud house, why do you want to build a brick house for the, those, those pigs? So the conflict, I saw there the conflict of ideologies between those who want to go with nature, which we want to do here in this camp in Kerry, and those who are influenced by the colonial system and who wanted to put up bricks, whatever else, even though brick buildings may not be even needed in the heat of that country, you know. There's a whole new um, way, a new way of approach. Anyway, we resolved that conflict in our own way and the co- it went ahead and became a very powerful project for the local families who actually got involved in. We housed the pigs in a local quarry, a big hole which had been put on the ground to make a road. The land was taken out to make a road. And there was a big hole there. And uh, the suggestion from the people who wanted to go the way of nature was, we'll put the pigs in there, we'll cut the trees from the top of this mountain here, and we will cover it with local bamboo trees. It's all local. 
and that's how this money from Ireland will be spent, you know, from Gorta as it happened at the time. So the women came regularly then and they fed the pigs, they looked after the pigs. When the house produced, the pigs were two months old. Each woman was able to take two pigs to her home from the centre and start her own uh, farming, pig farming, in each of their own small compounds, family farms. And that was part of the ideology of saying, put the pigs in a quarry, not in a building, because we, it has to be replicated in the local communities. It's a practical way. Yeah, now they built up their resilience with the women. They came together regularly. They talked about health, HIV AIDS. They, one of the people, leaders was a nurse and a human rights activist. I add human rights activist. Um, they learned, they cut honey. They, they started beehives. And they were very much aware that the bees needed to have uh, biodiversity all around. So with the pigs, manure, and what the pigs were doing, and the growth of uh, vegetables and the growth of potatoes and the growth of different varieties of roses and trees and all the rest of it, the place was becoming rich and luxuriant and avocado trees, I hasten to add. They were very important because it grows very well in Africa, you know. Yeah, I'm seeing exactly the same clash here. Here, 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 here where we are today. We are protesting against bringing in fracked gas. There's a company, New Fortress Energy, they want to bring fracked gas into Ireland. We need to have more friendly houses. We need to have uh, anaerobic digesters to produce our energy. We need to have community-owned wind farms, not wind farms which are making a big profit, as at the moment, where we are all paying excessive money for our electricity. The very day when they're telling us that whoever is owning these uh, windmills is making a lot of money. They're telling us that today even. So it isn't just the shells and the BPs that are making money, it's the owners of these wind farms, right? So we're saying we want community involvement and we know that in Ireland, the government, whatever system has come in place here, we are very poor. We have actually decentralized our government to such an extent that all the power now resides and the money resides in Dublin, right? And we want to see more community activism, more community life, where communities take control of their own lives. And that's really what I saw coming to place in Uganda, coming to, to life in Uganda, through all around farming, because that's what their livelihood is, you know? Yeah, and I see that, that's what I see here. That's what I see here. I see this Shannon LNG coming in here to make more money out of us here. The 75% of, of the fish on the Shannon River is gone. That's our native fish. 75% is already gone. That's from the marine, marine biologists tell us that, you know. So we are, it's very serious, the situation we're in, you know. Mm, they're gone already, yeah. Ireland, as a country which was colonised by the British Empire long before Uganda was, is further along in the imperial process. Although both countries have gained nominal independence, Ireland in the early 40s, Uganda 20 years later, both are still subjected by neoliberal capitalism. This is the essence of both imperialism and neocolonialism. Direct rule is unnecessary when the local ruling class has been indoctrinated by the coloniser. Ireland's ties to large-scale animal farming go back to the British system of plantation. Having declared to hell or to Connacht, and moving the peasantry to the west coast or off to Van Diemen's land, the British landlords covered the arable lands of the east with cows and sheep. The further industrialisation of farming into the factory farm system 
resulted in the erosion of that social glue that Maureen was talking about. More and more the work was being done by capital reserves of a wealthy few, rather than the labour force of the many. This of course accelerated the depopulation of the countryside, the population pressures in the cities, and ultimately created the conditions whereby rural communities are treated as marginal and easy to exploit. When people are desperate for some investment in their area, even terrible ideas like Shannon LNG can be sold as essential. And equally importantly, with a draining population, there are less people to resist the imposition of these projects. The United States, today's strongest imperialist power, pushes destructive projects on its own marginal communities, like the natives, as illustrated by Emma Mink in an earlier episode, and the sparsely populated countryside. In Maureen's example from Uganda, we see local culture and local methodologies developed in sync with their specific habitat are steamrolled by extractive projects, in this case a tea plantation. In the US, where agriculture has already been industrialised and individualised, rural communities still fall prey to expansionist extractivism, because the industry there is so deregulated and government is paid directly by industry lobbyists. Regardless of what sector you look at, the pattern is the same. Deregulation of industry, disempowerment of people, destruction of habitat. I recorded Ray giving a talk at the climate camp, where he goes into detail on the health and environmental effects of fracking. Well, a decade ago, they drilled a well 500 feet on my neighbor's land from my house and totally contaminated my property. And one day, they took out 33 water wells of 33 families in the village of Denver. To this day now, we still have no water at the houses. The aquifer has been totally destroyed, and we will never see water there again in our lifetime. I went to work for industry. I didn't realize I was going to get sick cancer. There's a very good friend of mine that worked with the industry. Barium, radiation poisoning. I got sequestered in the lungs from beyond the frac sites from the silica sand. They never turn into those Christmas have respirators. Like I said, seven cancer surgeries in a year and a half. We go on at the gas site and now we're doing what's called a mega pad. We'll put anywhere from 10 to 14 wells on one pad site. And it's called a spider drilling. And they'll drill off every section. Well, we'll go out a different direction from that pad. And we are now drilling out three to five miles. Which is scary. You know, the distance that we're covering. You're talking hundreds of millions of gallons of water just for one well to be fracked. And you got 14 wells on that pad. So now we're turning around, we're actually putting pipeline, water pipelines in from the Susquehanna River and everything else and pumping it up there so the trucks don't have to travel as far. And they're actually pumping out of the rivers to get water to the drill sites and to the frack sites. So, I mean, the water level of the Susquehanna River has probably dropped if you go down by Scran from our area down to Scran, which is about 50 miles, okay, of the river as the river flows, has dropped almost six feet. And, you know, so for a river to drop six feet from point A to point B, that's a significant drop, okay? Which also affects the habitation. You know, fish, wildlife, you know, it affects it all. So everything that comes back up, the flow back in prime water that comes back up is radioactive, which people don't realize. You know, we go in the hottest part of the Marcellus Shale. They actually put sensors out and they go for the hottest spot, the hottest radioactive spot. And that's what they drill through because that's where they get the most gas out of it. So 
again, I got, I got, you know, my report here right from the government, you know, showing four grades of uranium in my water, where I never had it before. And Halliburton has a technology, they have the perk gun that goes down, and they use inspect uranium on that perk gun to do the testing when they run it down through. Okay, so I actually have weapons grade uranium in my water. Now, where do you get that from? <laughs> Yo, and the other thing industry loves to do, well, that's naturally occurring. Yes, eight miles on the ground, yes, it's naturally occurring. Until you drilled the hole through it and brought it up to our water table and brought it up to the surface, we didn't have it. You know, Mother Nature was very smart, kept it eight miles underground. You know, our water wells are eight miles, you know, our water wells are like 200 feet. You know, until you brought it up to the surface, we didn't have a problem. We're hauling the drill cuttings to landfills all over the state, New York, Ohio, injection wells to get rid of the liquid. It's all radioactive. They run at night because the truck scales and all the stuff that's supposed to be open to protect us are closed. So they run everything at nighttime so they can get to where they want to go. They park trucks and containers in different areas and make parking lots and let them sit there for weeks and months on end because they're so radioactive, they let them sit there to cool down before they bring them back out. But they don't tell anybody in the public of this whatsoever. So the problem is, it's a health issue, okay? Between the silica sand, the dust, you know, we're spraying the flow back in the brine water on the roads for dust control. We just did a thing with Penn State and we had one of the officials from, you know, Pennsylvania Department. Protection, you know, yeah, right, protection, yeah. Believe that one, I'll tell you another one. He said in that on that interview and stuff when we were doing that uh, webinar that oh we know it's radioactive but we're spraying it on the roads but don't worry it washes right off so there's no danger of it. Now anyone trying to tell me here you can wash the radioactivity off the roadway and it's not going to be a problem, you try and tell me how you're doing it because it's impossible. But that's the way they classify it. These are our people that are supposed to protect us. You know, the part, you know, they are, they're the ones that are supposed to be protecting us, okay? You know, the Halliburton loophole is what it is. That was done by Bush and Cheney, and Cheney was one of the big people of Halliburton. And they turn around and put it in an executive order that they are exempt from clean air, clean water, and soil. They can do whatever they want, and there is absolutely nothing you can do about it because they have a presidential pardon, more or less, to get away with it. I was part of a grand jury. After that grand jury was done in court, our attorney general filed nine felonies and six misdemeanors against Cabot Oil and Gas that polluted our water. Two years ago, or two and a half years now, they have never stepped in a courtroom yet to answer these charges. It's a total wash out. You know, they won't, nobody will do it. You know, they just won't go after industry. So people like us have to go after them. The industry is suing me for $5 million right now for a disbursement and slander and breaking their, quote, MBA. Screw your MBA because I want to keep right on talking, so have fun out of it, you know. $5 million? Good luck if I ain't got nothing. <laughs> Dimmock, it seems, has been designated a sacrifice zone. Its inhabitants, mere externalities. The natural environment doesn't exist. This pattern playing out globally is an unavoidable part of the capitalist imperialist system. Local people have no say. The corporates who control the situation have one goal in mind, 
maximising profit. As Ray highlighted, the legal system is beholden to the capitalist class, represented in this case by the fracking industry. Wherever the money lies, power lies, which makes the system fundamentally undemocratic. This project is partly funded by Glushucht, an Irish environmental justice organisation whose support covered my travel and equipment expenses for making this series, so meal is to them. Many hours of work go into this podcast and I'm trying to make the work financially sustainable, so if you have the means, please send some wealth our way. There's hosting, travel and other expenses to cover, as well as my time and Garrett's time doing the illustrations and the like. So if you're in a position to, please go to patreon.com forward slash turningearth and subscribe. There's a number of options there and information on what extra audio material you get access to for subscribing. While at the climate camp, I also met environmental scientist Laura Kyo. We met later in the year for a conversation at our home. Laura told me that she worked for the Nature Conservancy and had recently been offered a new job working with indigenous groups in South America to map out land and help settle protected areas. While this would have been her dream job a couple of years previous, instead, she quit. It just feels like sitting in front of a laptop making maps isn't what's needed today. We're just, we're so deep into a global crisis and I think like nothing less than completely transforming culture will fix this. So making maps with indigenous people, like it sounds great and everyone thinks you're doing good work. And it's like, well, actually we just need to give indigenous people the power back. How do we do that? Like, how do we change where power lies? It's not, I don't think a scientist at a laptop publishing a report continuing to basically more or less be ignored as big business takes over more and more every single year you know like fossil fuel subsidies they've increased quite substantially over the past few years while fossil fuel profits have skyrocketed while the world hurtles towards an absolute shocking recession and complete climate chaos so it's just like why am i sitting in front of a laptop all day working on reports when the world is literally crumbling. And I don't know specifically what to do, but I know that it needs to be more aimed towards the root of the issue and not like pruning the branches. And to me, I think the root of the issue is that we've, we're just in this model of exploitation and we need to get out of that model as quickly as possible, like exploitation of nature and of each other. And I would call that capitalism. The capitalist model, which finds its fullest expression through the international system of imperialist exploitation and neocolonialism, in practical terms means exploitation of the land and the people in every part of the world it touches. The unfettered use and abuse of water and air, which realistically need to be seen as the birthright of all living peoples. The perspectives and experience shared from both Maureen and Laura, who you'll hear more from later, highlight the imbalance in the system. No matter how much information we gather, how much knowledge we build and what community strength we build on a local level, it can all be wiped away with the stroke of a pen, while power lies with the capitalist class. There's much debate in our media over the technicalities of biodiversity loss, water scarcity, climate change and other intensifying crises, but very little attention is given to the linchpin of all these issues, democratic control. Debates on quotas for farmers were prevalent in the media while I was conducting these interviews, days of hand-wringing over a difference of 2% in herd size. I don't remember any discussion over who is benefiting from this and who is suffering. Who gets to make these decisions and who gets to suffer the consequences? I'll drop you back to Leaf and Root Farm now to hear from Fergal Anderson. That's the industrial system trying to find a mechanism, an accounting mechanism, which it can understand and it can interact with and it can manipulate so it can kind of continue to do what it's doing and, you know, offset it somewhere else. And, you know, 
really what we need to see is 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 a transition away from that production model completely so like you know we need to we need to shut down factory farms we need to you know we're not going to do it that way anymore we're going to do it in a different way and I, as i said i think you i think society is ready for that it's because it, it requires changes for for people's you know diets it requires changes in how people interact and, and do their business in terms of accessing food and, and and purchasing food and but i mean i don't think i think those things can all be framed in a positive light as well we shouldn't be afraid of those things we should we should embrace them and say look it's it's it's, it's a good thing to be more in contact with the the place that we're we live and you know the, the people that produce our food and and have a more kind of yeah more holistic kind of uh, approach rather than a consumer just a consumer you know based approach to how we interact with with everything no we 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 found that like I mean, we talk about agroecology and like agroecology is about trying to work with natural systems essentially to you know integrate food production into what are natural processes so like you know it's a low input system it's zero inputs at, the, at its best you know what i mean so like you're not uh, bringing in fertility you're you're cycling fertility you're cycling uh, things through the through the system and like yeah that's not even at the table we don't even we, we don't we, we we struggle to get a, a voice at the at any discussions you know and like i mean that's what i said earlier about the, the framework the framework of the discussion is the conventional agricultural industrial agricultural system what can we do within that to reduce emissions reduce its impact and what we we say is we want to change the framework of the discussion we want to talk about food sovereignty we want to talk about agroecology and those two things are democratization of the food system in general and like agroecology is about about integrating the food system into the kind of carrying capacity of the landscape uh, and and adapting to that landscape and what you can do within the kind of place that you you are so it adapts from place to place from culture to culture from country to country and like you know food sovereignty and agroecology look, might look different in every place but that's part of the the joy of, of food production it should be different in every place it's going to be that, that that's the the fascination of it as well i mean we do what we can here in ireland we produce what we can but uh you know, not at the expense of other other locations either, and, and, and that's the other thing I suppose with the the argument that you hear about the if we don't do it here, somebody else will do it. You know, worse is that a lot of the exports that come out of Ireland, dried milk powder or whatever it might be, are going into. There's not much discussion about the impact that they have on third third markets, like on the agriculture of those third markets. Like, so like if you're in a West Africa and you know you're a dairy producer and you you can't you can't compete with the dried milk powder coming in from Europe. You, you, in fact, you're you know you're, the country that you live in may have signed been, been forced to sign a bilateral trade agreement with the European Union, which obliges them to to import like say ten thousand tons of dried milk powder every year, just to support a European farming. And I, and I don't think that's again something that morally we can stand over and say yeah I'm okay with that. I mean, what about the family of the of the of the Senegalese? milk producer dairy producer I mean, you're saying they, sh- they shouldn't exist that they're they, you know they have to leave their their land they have to move to the city or whatever it is you know so like i think we need to build solidarity between farmers internationally and say you know we all want to have a thriving rural landscape with like a farmers are in a fair living producing food for their communities that's what we want and we want that that's what they want that's what we want um and we should try and oppose things that get in between uh, get in the way of that, and one of the things is is those kind of trade policies and those trade agreements, which, which kind of which continue that subservient kind of attitude of, you know, we're Europe, we we import inputs and we process and we export and we push it onto the, it's a it's a post-colonial kind of new, you know a continuation of that colonial model, and like um, Ireland of all places should be have a more mature relationship and recognize 
the impact of its agriculture, recognise the impact of that overseas, recognise the fact that it's failing to feed its own population, you know, with healthy and nutritious food produced by people living on the, on the island. I mean, that, that, I think that's horrendous. Like, with the history that we have with the, with the famine, you know, that should become like a, a cornerstone of our food and agricultural policy is that, you know, no one goes hungry here, no one, everyone eats well, everyone eats, you know, good food produced by farmers who have getting a fair price that are working in dignity, you know what I mean? Not just exporting as much as we can to, you know, into global markets and totally at the whim of global market prices and a couple of processors who kind of have the whole show tied up. That's basically what we have here, like, you know? Yeah, yeah. Everyone's afraid of those big, those big processors. I won't say the names. <laughs> <laughs> we all know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the, meat, the, the meat barons. The beef barons, yeah. And, like, and, and the dairy, I mean, the dairy industry isn't, isn't much different. I mean, they've got their own... They're big companies now, like they're transnational companies. They're they're operating at a level far beyond like the local parish. So like for 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 those companies, I think a lot of farm families are really just a balance sheet. They're they're on their balance sheet, but they're not necessarily like the the be all and end all. And they're often presented that way. But I mean, I think those farm families could also find other ways, or, or we could be we could, we could try and find other ways for those for those farm families to make to make a fair living in, from their work, which doesn't include the kind of environmental impact or externalised uh, impacts in, in other countries, uh, you know, so that's what we should be exploring, I think. The neoliberal capitalist ideology pushes the myth of trickle-down economics. The idea that if the people at the top are allowed to make as much of a profit as they can, the benefits will eventually trickle down to the great masses of people. We've been living with decades of this ideology now, and so far, the opposite has proven to be true. Here in Ireland, small farmers are gradually being run out of work by the beef barons such as Larry Goodman. A recent study by Oxfam highlighted that the two richest people in Ireland now own more wealth than the poorest 50% of the population. Two people. The exact same dynamic is mirrored on the international scale, as over the last 10 years the richest 1% acquired as much wealth as the rest of the 99% combined. International free trade agreements, a key strategic tool of the neo-colonial capitalist class, are essential to this wealth hoarding. The proposed EU-Mercosur trade deal is one such which has been heavily criticised by farmers, indigenous rights activists and environmentalists. Yes, that is how a section of my hair went grey, quite literally. <laughs> Jesus. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe it would have happened anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, like I was very stressed out about Bolsonaro becoming president and I knew what was going to happen there with indigenous people and with deforestation because he literally said what he was going to do before he was elected. Mm. Um, and so I uh, was reading about Sonia Guajajara, who's an indigenous leader in Brazil, and she was calling on Europe to embargo trade with Brazil. And I thought that was a great idea. Um, and I thought, OK, how do I add weight to that call? Mm. And the Mercosur deal was being negotiated at the time, um, which is this massive trade deal that they've been negotiating for 20 years between mm a block of countries in Latin America, including Brazil and the EU. Right. And uh, it would have like locked in trade at certain tariffs and rates um, to benefit both sides and also to fuel deforestation and to say essentially, it's okay what you're doing, we'll still do business with you. Mm. So my big call was like, unless Brazil is actually making progress towards their own commitments in the Paris Agreement, which was to reduce deforestation, we shouldn't do business with them and we shouldn't even negotiate a trade deal and decided I could write something and try and publish it in science 
as a letter and get the support of loads of scientists in Europe. So we ended up getting 600 scientists in Europe to sign up to this call mm. to make trade contingent on Brazil, like not increasing their deforestation, but decreasing it. Mm. And we got uh, big organizations in Brazil representing over 300 indigenous groups in Brazil, which is the vast majority of indigenous groups, mm. to also support this call. So it was the first time we had all these indigenous groups and indigenous leaders together with 600 scientists in the EU calling on the European Commission to you know, be really strict on this mm. because the Amazon rainforest is at a tipping point. It could tip into a dry savanna state and that would change climate patterns globally. Mm. That would destroy the lives of the indigenous people that live there, of all of the endangered species that live there. And the Amazon is just this absolutely magical ancient place that's you know, deserves to exist in this world, yeah, yeah. fundamentally. Um, and so the call was like, investigate the murders of indigenous people. Don't just sweep that under the carpet. Stop deforesting and like, so basically follow your own laws, you know, yeah, yeah. follow your own laws and then we'll consider business. We'll consider this deal. Yeah, yeah. And the call got loads of um, media attention. Mm. It got really, really good attention. It was on the nine o'clock news in Brazil every night because the environmental minister said that I was a fraud of a scientist. Um, and at the time I was working for Oxford University, so he was laughed at. And for that reason, it got loads of public attention in Brazil. He had to actually cancel his trip to Europe because of the like ridiculousness that he caused yeah. criticizing us. Um, so the whole thing got really big. I was invited to the European Commission to meet with the Trade Commissioner in person and some other commissioners too and then nothing happened, mm. you know? And it's just like you realise like the EU was built on colonialism actually and they want the best deal economically above everything else mm. and so they put in some really weak stuff in the agreement. Um, that, that we knew could be worked around. It wasn't strong enough at all. Mm. And they just carry on. They smile and they nod and they carry on. And it's just like, it kind of broke my heart to be honest, because it's like, you put everything into something, you think it could just do something mm. at the level that's needed. Yeah, yeah. At the level that could actually make Bolsonaro think, oh, do you know what? We need to actually change course here because we need Europe as a business partner. And if they're not going to put up with this, we can't carry on down this track. And then the Amazon doesn't flip into a savanna state, you know, like mm. those were the stakes, they were that high and the trade commissioner just didn't get it. Mm. She just didn't, you could tell she just wanted to smile and nod and carry on. She has to be seen to talk to you to like... And it's like you could make history here mm. as the first trade commissioner that actually takes this seriously. Yeah, yeah. But instead you just want to have a deal done, you know, mm. and it's just... Um, it's like you can do and everybody was kind of like congratulating me for leading this and doing it and it go, getting so big and it like having some imaginary impact i don't know what like it raised awareness but surely we're aware enough already yeah, yeah. Mm. like what can i learn from this yeah, yeah ridiculousness like can you actually change the system from the inside as a professional scientist doing these calls yeah. doing things that like weren't actually technically my job because I'm just supposed to be writing reports. Mm. Can you change things that way? This time, no. Mm. Any time? Like, has it ever worked? I don't know. Like, and the time is now, like, for trying these things and not giving up. But mm. to be honest, 
I feel like there's just such a um, disconnect with global leaders still. Mm. Like there is not a single global leader taking climate action seriously of like the G20 countries, yeah, yeah. the G5, whatever you call them. Like there's not a single one really actually mm. they're all talking about it but you can tell you can look at them and you can tell by their actions they are not addressing this mm. they're under this thing of corruption and of like avoidance yeah, yeah um and so i don't think having meetings with these people is working i don't think these global cop conferences are working we need like Everybody standing up demanding a lot more mm. or taking it into their own hands at this point yeah, yeah. As well as that like we always think every single summer people take people tell me oh Maybe now we'll take it seriously Like now that Germany's flooded or now that the train tracks went on fire in London or now that we're running out of water in Cork Like maybe now people will take it. And it's like no like we've been saying that since the 70s Scientists have literally been saying that since the 70s, that yeah, maybe yeah. now things are serious enough that the issue will be taken seriously by leaders. And it hasn't happened. Yeah. It keeps not happening. It's amazing. Yeah. And every year I want to believe it, and every year it still doesn't happen. Yeah. And so it's like we all need to urgently get involved here because we cannot trust anybody else to do it for us. Yeah, yeah. The game is rigged. There is great solidarity between the capitalist class internationally. They, the owners of the largest companies in the world, the leaders of most governments, the financiers and bankers, are focused on maximising profits and gains for themselves. They are taking the situation seriously, but not for the benefit of the majority. They're looking out for their own class interests, while maintaining a veneer of interest and concern for the great masses of the world. As Laura said, they smile and they nod and they carry on. We need to completely change this framework, build power internationally with people on the ground, in a way that centres us in nature. You heard from Fidel Mokane in previous episodes talking about the links Save Our Sparrows have built with anti-mining activists globally. Here she'll talk about some more of the lessons learned from their international comrades. Well, that, that is true, exactly, and it gives us great encouragement when you hear. A lot of the people we've been speaking to in other countries are in, the, in their campaign at the moment, and some of them where gold mining was allowed to go ahead, uh, you know, where then once they've got their foot in the door, then they look for bigger and more, you know, more go, you know, to develop their gold mines deeper and over an extended area. And then that's when the people have begun to get the, the uh, pollution incidents and the bad uh, results from it. And then they're now objecting, you know, and it's very hard for them when it's already in, yeah. you know, and started and ongoing. That makes it even harder for them, you know. So, um, no, it's, it is heartening to hear from people that have been successful in stopping it. And I think, too, uh, I suppose we've learned a lot recently about free prior and informed consent. And that's, you know, that should, be, should carry weight. The local people here, free prior and informed consent, should be fully informed, uh, you know, of all the detrimental effects of gold mining, and that they should be able to give their you know, their informed consent whether they wanted to go ahead or not. And the other thing that has helped us a lot, uh, we've learned about rights of nature and rights of communities. Like who is speaking for this area? Who's speaking for the fields and the trees and the the rivers? You know, that's that. That's the thing, like the people here are trying to stand up for them because they have no rights, like they're regarded as a commodity to be exploited. And 
you know, the fish, the freshwater pearl mussels that are in our rivers, that are Ireland's only globally endangered species, mm. like they're at risk because of this gold mine. There's no one representing their interests. So we've learned about the rights of nature and we're hoping to get that established and rights of communities. In fact, as a community, we have established our right on this road. Um, Dalridian, the gold mining company, applied to have this road abandoned because it runs through their proposed site. But so this is a, a public road? And they, they this is a public right of way and um, they applied to the road service to have it abandoned and uh, people have written in, in about it and so we had a ceremony and asserted the rights of the community to use this road as they have done for generations and that the road service has no right to abandon it and to give it to a Canadian company and that we intend for ge future generations to be able to pass freely on this road. So we have a, put a notice at the end, at each end of the road, asserting our rights and I think you know, and we've sent that into the council as well and to the road service so they know that this, you know, the community is asserting their rights to use this road and it's not for abandonment. The rights of nature is a concept that has been developed over the last number of decades by legal experts, indigenous and environmental activists. So far, the only country in the world that has enshrined the rights of nature in its constitution is Ecuador. No, it's no, it's not seen. Uh, like, and why shouldn't the tree be allowed to grow and thrive and you know, generate, like, uh, you know, well, how come a company has more rights over, you know, a tree or a river? Like, it's, it doesn't seem uh, logical. We're dependent on this area for our health, you know, and for our well-being. And surely that should be considered, you know, not a, a company coming in to poison us and to take the the resources out of the ground out of uh, and out of the country and to make their shareholders and investors rich in another country and it's not we don't want I mean we don't want it uh, mined at all here we want it to stay where it is in under the ground and just you mentioned there that about the GDP and that and yeah our politicians all the time are going for growth going for bigger 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 all the time and sure growth can't go on forever it has to be finite it has to stop somewhere and i think we need to be re-looking at our policies and you know like i think scotland and sweden and new zealand those three countries and i notice the the three prime ministers are female and maybe that says something but um they're talking about now instead of having growth having the health and well-being of their people as the important thing and i definitely think surely from COVID. We should have learned that, that health is the main thing. Look at, you know, all the people who died and regardless of how much money they had, they couldn't have bought health. And I think that health and well-being should take precedence over wealth. And I think that, you know, I think that if we follow in the example of those people, that's what they're talking about now, uh, you know, rather than all the time, growth, growth, growth. And I mean, it's like the farming, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger and all these factory farms now and they're taking feed stuff from South America, flying it over here to feed the pigs and the hens and then their um, excrement has been spread on the, on the fields and they're getting all these injections and then the meat has been shipped off to China and like the, the stuff, the excrement I suppose you'd say has gone into the water table and into the air and all and again that's polluting our land and I mean 
for what and even if you think even if the planes that are bringing the feedstuff from South America and the planes that are bringing the meat to, to China you know there's like all that uh, you know talk about the carbon now and that we should be reducing our carbon footprint like it's, it doesn't make sense whereas the small farmers around here they're small farmers and it's you know trying to farm sustainably and they have an affinity with their fields and their land and they mightn't have the best of land but they care for it, they nurture it, they, you know, they do the best they can for it and rotate you know, their crops and you know, look after their animals. They're not trying to fatten them up in a couple of months and get the you know, best price for them. They're, you know, they're, it's just it's a completely different way of thinking. I, I think if there were rights of, rights of nature and rights of communities were ingrained in law, that would be a great start because if there's rights of communities, the free, prior and informed consent of the local people would have to be gained. And if the, if the, the nature had rights, people could you know, take cases for nature and stand up for the protection of the river or the mountain or the fields or the forest or whatever. We have the potential to become aware of ourselves as a global species. So far, the technology and the institutions we rely on for that have been more or less exclusively in the hands of capitalists. Neo-colonial, imperialist governments call the shots. The rest of us scramble at the bottom to keep ourselves going. Globalisation understood as the expansion and normalisation of capitalism over the planet, has been resisted by anti-capitalists every step of the way. If it can be stopped, it will only be through organising to meet it. Well, we have to, I mean, we're, Tarapio, for example, are Ireland's only member of La Via Campesina. And La Via Campesina emerged in that ultra-globalisation struggles, like back in the, you know, Battle of Seattle or whatever it was, back in the, uh, the end of the 19th, uh, 20th century. They're really one of the, there were other organizations, sort of citizen-led organizations like People's Global Action, the, you know, the World Social Forum that existed around that time. But I think the one that has succeeded and survived best has been La Via Campesina. It's still, it's still there and it's, it's still an articulation of uh, farmers' movements from all across the world. So for us, I mean, we interact with La Via Campesina through the European Coordination Via Campesina, which is a, we're a member of. And like, I mean, that's already an eye-opener for us to see all the different things that are happening across Europe and France and Portugal and Greece and Germany, wherever it might be. And, uh, and I think internationally then to kind of build that link is, is that, that's up to us to see how we, we can best engage with those, uh, those other farmers. And I, I think what you're saying about the awareness is, is certainly true. Um, I, what I, I think about this myself and, uh, you know, I think we're kind of badly served by the mechanisms we have for communicating with, with one another. I mean, the, most of the, the, the mechanisms we have for communicating with other parts of the world or other citizens and other countries are privately owned. And we use the internet, but like we use Facebook or we use Twitter or we use, and there are corporations as well. So like, I mean, I think we need to go back, we need to recognize that like, you know, a lot of those you know, the services that are provided are also profit-making companies in and of themselves. And can't always be trusted as a as a as a as a as a, as a good, you know, uh, vehicle for our interactions. So I, I think Via Campesina was built on personal personal relationships, essentially, and a shared bond, perhaps the shared bond of being land-based, you know, farmers, which is very strong, you know, and like I, I, it's amazing, you know, you can meet a farmer from Indonesia and identify with them very quickly and it's, it's remarkable how, how quickly you can build a bond just because you're both 
engaged in a, a similar activity, you know? So like, I mean, th that's useful if you have that. But I mean, I think the, the personal interaction is also really important. And that's why I think, I mean, we, we still use uh, Zoom and we use, uh, you know, Skype or whatever to interact and to have meetings and talk. But you, we, we should never lose uh, sight of the importance of actually being in the same space as somebody. And it's particularly when it's somebody from another country. And I think, you know, obviously, you know, there's a lot of criticism of transport and flying. But I mean, I think when it comes to building movements internationally, we shouldn't shy away from that either. We have to sort of say it's more important. It's important that, like, you know, leaders uh, from, from here or leaders from other countries meet or you know, or representatives or whatever it might be, or farmers or grassroots people get together. And I think we're missing that again. And I mean, I remember the, those, like, like the G8, the big mobilizations against that, thousands of people coming together in one place. And, you know, that's not the same as thousands of people coming together online in one place. It's, it's totally different, you know what I mean? You've got to kind of recognize human beings are, act differently and have a different response when they're in the same room as somebody. So, like... We have to kind of revalue that and, and, and not be afraid to, to move around in, on our planet and, and interact with one another. Because if we don't, we're going to end up in our own little bubbles with those exchanges happening through those private companies. And we shouldn't, I mean, so like, I think moving, we have to get back in the move, maybe. Is, and I, I mean, I know people say fly less, but I think, it, you know, we've got to be careful of that as well. Because that's also, you know, the people that end up flying all the time will be business leaders and, yeah. you know, rich people. And like, you know, we have to make sure that we're, you know, we're flying farmers as well, <laughs> or whoever it is, you know what I mean? But like, you have to, it's not like we'll be frequent flyers anyway, like, you know what I mean? Once or once a year might be enough, but I think you have to build those relationships and, and that, maybe that goes for all spheres and all sectors and, and, and for people to kind of recognize that and learn from one another and. Yeah, you don't want to leave the networking up to business class alone. Exactly, exactly. You know, and they, they will continue to do it for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, regardless of the climate cost, or, you know, and, and I, be, I bet that their most effective organizations are built around the same personal interactions and, you know, you can be oh, sure definitely. of it. Like, you know, that's how, that's how the world turns ultimately is like between people. So, yeah, we shouldn't shy away from that, I think, and, and you know, get people in the same room and, 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 uh, and just exchange, you know, that's, sometimes that's enough. You know, you, you, you don't even have to have another reason. I mean, it's just to say, this is what's happening in my part of the world, this is what's happening in my part of the world. That's a pure interaction. Do you know what I mean? There's no, nothing, you know, and, and I suppose, you know, as I said, the internet is fine for that, but like, if you want to build some, build on it going forward, I think it's, it's better to do it face to face if you can, you know. How do we break out of the internet? How do we, as people who understand ourselves as embedded in our world, and who understand that the current economic system, the capitalist system, isn't working, how do we build international organisations to build strength and replace the system? Fly less? No. Organise. Fight as dirty as you need to. There's too much at stake for us to let personal, individualised moralising stop us from building mass worker consciousness and global species self-consciousness. That's it for this episode. Thanks again to Glushucht and DDR. And remember, if you want to support the podcast, please subscribe on patreon.com forward slash turning earth. If you can't afford to subscribe, there's lots of other ways to help. You could leave a review and a rating. And please follow or subscribe on whatever apps or social media you use. You'll find links to all of that at linktree.com forward slash turning earth. And really, the most helpful thing you can do is recommend it to people. Spread the word in whatever way you can. This is independent media. It doesn't get heard unless you tell people about it. And lastly, if you want to ask any questions or give any criticism, please email me at turningearthradio at gmail.com.
Slangerfolk.